And with that, we turn to Exodus chapter 3 once more and to this majestic text, really a mountain-high experience, getting to know the God who reveals Himself here as the I Am. As we've noted, the book of Exodus is really a reintroduction to God. Who is God? A recurring theme through this book is, do you know Him? Who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? Who is God? Well, this, this book, God's out to teach us once more what He's like, to show us His majesty that we cannot comprehend. We need to be asking, who he, is He? Now, it's easy for us to really be asking an almost entirely opposite question, though it's a related one. We always seem to be asked the question, not who is He, but who am I? This is the question our culture just bangs around in people's brains and minds, obviously taking us to some strange places. But we, we do need to answer the question, who am I? What should I do? What should it be about? Who am I? What defines me? What's my identity? Again, this is a question I think we all must come to ask as much as we're self-aware, and you must answer it in some way or another if you're going to get anywhere in this world. And interestingly, though, if you think through just our own society, it's a question that when it was asked in past generations, the society and our culture it had ready answers for you when you tried to ask the question, well, who am I? But in a way, as most see today, those tried and, quote, true answers, they're so stifling, aren't they? They're so limiting. Today in our culture, you can see it because the, the hero or heroine stories are all about what? They're all about the person who blazed a new trail, who threw off the definitions, the expectations of others, and they figured out who they really were. Or hence, you see this, the predominance in our culture, preoccupation with finding the new and better self, finding out who I really am throwing off all boundaries, all expectations to be the real me. It's postulated. And that's why you see, what is it, millions? Is it billions of dollars from books, websites, podcasts, TV shows, these internet influencers? They're all trying to guide you to say, I want you to be the better you. They're you who you envision yourself to be. Define yourself. Find your identity in you. And yet, of course, we see the, the recourse of that in our own culture as we've thrown off so many boundaries, maybe some of those were not good expectations, some of them were, I would contend. But you see it with our young people who are, are trying to figure themselves out, trying to figure themselves out as their body changes, as their relationships changes, as they're just trying to find a way in this world, and they've been thrown into a sea of really an ocean of possibilities to try and find themselves, but at it they drowned with nothing to really hang on to, especially as they have to look deeper and deeper within as they're constantly told to, and we know that the heart's deceitful, it's wicked. There's no solid answers there. But some, you, you must find your identity, you must try to find yourself someplace. You've got to find answers somewhere. What should I be about? You, you, you have to figure out, how am I supposed to dress? How, how do I, what am I supposed to care about? What's supposed to define me? Who am I? Where do I belong? So people conform themselves to political ideas, whether it's on the right or the left. That gives you a definition, a worldview, how you should think about life. Or they find it in social activism and agendas on, again, either side. But in particular, we see it this new passionate, right, vehement 
conformity to the rainbow and the alphabet suit of LGBTQ plus to whatever, because it defines things for you, tells you what you should like and don't like. Others find their identity, again, think of young people or think of that as you were growing up in high school. Who were you? You know, are you going to be, are you going to find your identity in music? You know, when I was growing up, it's like grunge rock, alternative music, which had its own like section in the radio store or the record store, meaning it wasn't so alternative anyway, but that's the way it is, isn't it? Or maybe it's about being a jock. I'm the jock guy. That's what I do. Or I'm the nerd kid. I got all the answers to people's questions and I'm kind of awkward. If that's what you want to define you. We still do it today, though. Even as you come in this room, what defines you? Oh, I'm a pastor. Yes. I'm a Bible study leader. I'm such and so forth in a corporation. I'm a mom. That defines me. That's my, where I find my identity. Or more than that, I'm a homeschool mom. <laughs> that defines me. Or I'm a Christian teen. I got the Jesus t-shirt. Watch out. Fill in the blank. But really what it shows with so many options out there, so to speak, we're lost. We're wandering as a society. We're trying to find ourselves to answer the question, who am I? But again, we must first answer the question, not who am I, but who is the I am? Who is He? Who is God? We must figure out who He is if we're ever going to try and understand who we are, because you understand you were made by Him. He holds you together this moment. You are His. But who is He? He is the one who calls Himself very existence itself. I am who I am, we read just a moment ago. He is the truth. He's the reality that sets the, the pace for everything. He sets the stage for all creation. And so you understand, He does not change. We must all must bow, conform, and bend to Him. He defines it all. He is God. He just is. Well, that sets up what we see in this text from Exodus. Continuing what we saw last time, we're seeing because He is, because He is the ultimate one, that He is then fully sufficient in and of Himself. He has it all. He needs nothing. He lacks nothing. And what's so important, though, is when that fully sufficient God interacts then and comes close to totally insufficient people like Moses or like you and me this morning. For God's full sufficiency in Himself makes up for all of our insufficiencies, our inadequacies, our insecurities. I don't know, but can I really? These questions we have constantly roiling in our heart. But we look back to the fully sufficient God. So then, if we can see Him, not looking at ourselves, but see Him, what then are we ready to do? We're ready to step forward in faithful obedience, to walk in obedience to His call on your life, not because you've got it or you're able, but because He is. And we began this journey and to understand this first when we saw a holy God calling a fallen man, Moses. We saw that in verses 1 to 5 last time. But what's interesting, what makes him fallen, Moses, is that he's a sinner, like all of us. But what gets exposed, or how that's exposed in the text, is not by comparing Moses to other sinners, to other fallen people. 
though that would have been easy enough to do, right? Moses, why is he in the wilderness? He's a murderer. He's been on the run. So that would have been easy. Compare him to other sinners. Yeah, he's a murderer. I mean, when you were on the street or you might talk to anybody and you ask that question, oh, are you a good person? What's the first thing they almost always say? Besides, yes, and then, well, how do you know? Well, I didn't kill anybody, right? As if that's the standard of what's good. (laughs) Nevertheless, good for you. You didn't murder anyone. Well, Moses did. Nevertheless, it wasn't him comparing himself to all the non-murderers out there that revealed that he was a sinner. No, you see, when he comes before God's holy standard, he and us non-murderers, we're all guilty, unfit to be there. As you remember, if you recall, Moses was called, invited in onto the holy carpet before God. He didn't know that's what he was walking into. He just saw this strange sight, this fire that didn't burn anything, but it just kept burning. And he wanted to go see what that was. And little did he know, he stumbled before the holiness of God. And that was dangerous. But God would make up for that. Next, we would see this. A faithful God commands a failed man. Verses 6 to 10. As Moses is confronted with the holiness of God, where does God go to? He goes to his faithfulness. He turns to his promises. This is where the assurance and hope for Moses lies. God underscores immediately his long-standing memory and faithfulness of his word. Look at verse 6, finally, of Exodus chapter 3. And God said, I am the God. So here's the first thing he really says to him. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am the faithful God. I'm the God who made promises to them a long time ago, and now, you remember, I'm calling them to mind, and I'm going to act on them here. And how is He going to act? Well, God reveals His plans to Moses. He says, I'm going to come down from heaven, and I'm going to rescue my people. And Moses, it surely is like, this sounds like great news. But then here's the thing, Moses, I'm sending you to do it. What? Verse 10, come, God says, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And as we noted, from here until the middle of chapter 4, Moses just heaping up all kinds of excuses and excuses why this is such a horrible idea to have Moses involved in this escape plan. But what Moses needs to learn, what we need to learn this morning, when God calls you to a work, when He calls you to a ministry... Leave that aside, those big, grandiose ideas. When He calls you just to take one step of obedience... The issue or question is not whether or not this will work. You know, oh, I tried this. It failed so many times. I keep messing up, God. I don't have the boldness to do this. You fill in the blank. The question isn't you. The question is, who is this God who calls you? Is our faith so small that we cannot believe that God can work even in this situation? And if that's how small our faith is, That's how small our view of God is. That's what this text is to do, to open up your eyes to see God is far more majestic, bigger, immense, powerful, significant than you could imagine. It's not about your abilities or proficiencies, but His. Next then, that's where we left it last time, we turn to this. 
we see a present God give courage, or a present God comes to a feeble man. A present God comes to a feeble man. That is, Moses now, he's very aware of his, his insufficiencies. He's not up for this task, but God is, and He's with Moses, and that makes all the difference. So we see it. Now we look at verse 11. God had said in verse 10, I'm sending you, Moses, to go do this. Here's Moses' reply. This isn't such a good idea, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And there's one sense where you want to rebuke Moses here, right? For his lack of faith. I find your lack of faith very disturbing, Moses. And so did God, I would think. Go ahead and look to chapter 4, verse 14. As Moses keeps on heaping up objection after objection, we read in verse 14 of chapter 4, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He's fed up with him. Moses, stop shirking the responsibility. Just walk forward. And again, I think we want to rebuke him. How could your faith be so small? You saw the burning bush. Wasn't that amazing? God gave you a little miracle. And then he spoke to you. What would you how, have you said it before? Oh, if God would just speak to me, if you would just tell me directly what's going on, what he wants me to do, I would do it straight out, no questions asked. Have you said, have you, have you said that to God? Well, Moses, you got it. What are you waiting for? I think there is a faithlessness here. I think there is a, at least a lack of faith, a struggle that Moses is having. But can you blame him? Again, who is Moses? He's a murderer. He's a failed redeemer. He's run away and in exile. So in that sense, it's not a bad question. Who is Moses to go before Pharaoh, probably the most powerful king on the face of the earth? God, you, you got to know I'm no match for this. I can't do this. I think God exactly knows that he can't do this. Precisely. But understand, this wasn't a misjudgment on God's part. When he called to Moses, he didn't call the wrong person. That was God's plan from the very beginning. God knew from the beginning how feeble Moses would be. He knew how flawed Moses would be. He knew how Moses was going to mess up. And yet he still called him anyway. Moses' ability, his resourcefulness, were never the answer to this challenge or any call that God gives to us. It's not about us, right? It's about God, verse 12. When Moses says, hey, I don't think I can do this, here's God's gracious reply. He said, but I will be with you. And so it is the presence of God makes all the difference. It changes everything. It isn't about you. It's about me, God says, and that I'm with you. This is the winning formula. And from there, many times in Scripture, God does this very thing. He dispels our fears by giving us His presence to equip us for His will and call. So as one example, just flip over in your Bible or listen closely. Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Look at Deuteronomy 31. This is the end of Moses' life. 
This is the culmination of all that Moses has been leading up to. He's trying to lead God's people into the promised land, out of Egypt into a good and spacious land. And they're at the cusp of it here, but of course Moses isn't going to go, get to go in. We might talk about that another time. So as Moses is going to come off the scene, and now he's talking to Israel, what is he going to tell them? How can they do this audacious thing to go into this promised land, face all these armies, take them down when they're so much stronger than him? What can they do? Well, it's not about them. Look at verse 3 of Deuteronomy 31. The Lord, your God himself, will go over before you. God goes with you. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread that is of the other nations. Why? For it's the Lord who got your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. How can you do this? Only because God is there. And then you have, that's his word to the nation. Then he says basically the same exact thing to Joshua, his successor, the one who's supposed to lead this million plus people into the promised land. How in the world is he going to do this? Look at verse 7. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous for, what's the reason? Skip to verse 8 ultimately. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. And he will not leave you or forsake you. So what? Do not fear. Be dismayed. God is here. That changes everything. And maybe that truth is no better captured than by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 41 verse 10. Fear not. Why? For I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God and I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Praise God that He's with us. But this presence of the Almighty God isn't merely about making you feel better. He doesn't give you His presence just to merely comfort you. No, He's equipping you. He's coming alongside you to put you to work, to work you don't think you can do. There's many examples of this, even in the New Testament. I want to show you one. Maybe you remember it. It's at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Remember that? The Great Commission. Do you remember how audacious the Great Commission is? Christ calls us to go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, this is global, international, multilingual, multi-ethnic, certainly multi-generational. This is our task, to make disciples, followers of Jesus from every nation, people, and tribe, and language of the earth, and that for all time. Here's your job. Get at it. Intimidating, maybe? Well, what was the assurance that King Jesus, King Jesus gave? Do you remember what it was at the end of the Great Commission? And behold... He's saying, take note, take courage, behold, I am with you, always, even to the end of the age. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. So you look at that command, go make disciples of all nations. I can hardly disciple those in my house. How in the world am I supposed to do that across the globe? I can't do this. Yeah, that's kind of the point. 
But can King Jesus do this even through you? That's what makes the difference. Fear flees at the assurance of his presence. And so by faith, we're called like Joshua to be strong and courageous, to step forward in faithfulness, not because we got this, but because we know he does and he's with us. That's the only place where your confidence can lie. So, as you think about this week even, what has he called you to do that you feel wholly inadequate to accomplish? Who am I to speak to my boss about Jesus? Who am I to go interrupt my neighbor to speak about Christ? Who am I to to spark and try and lead this gospel conversation with my son? Who am I to try and lead some ladies in prayer and scripture study? Who am I to try and take some initiative and organize some brothers that we might be a service team to help in the body or in the community? Who am I to do that? Who am I? God, I failed. Who am I? It's not about you, you see. It's about the presence of God, the one who's with you. Changes everything. He gives that reassurance first, so back to the text in Exodus, that God will be with him. But he gives him another one, and this is maybe a little strange. He gives him a a sign, a confirmation. Now, but what's strange about this sign that we see here in Exodus 3 is that it doesn't work like signs, at least how you typically might think of them. When I think of a sign to try and encourage me to do something, I think of the example of like Gideon and his fleece, remember? He wasn't sure that he's really the one that should go attack God's enemies, and so he put out his fleece. And he's like, God, make the fleece wet, but all the grass around it dry. And then God does that. And then he's like, okay, let's flip it, God. Can you do that? Can you make all the grass wet and the fleece dry? And God does that. So he had this sign, this confirmation, a miracle that assures him, okay, I can go forward and do this. God, I know you're in this. But this kind of sign works differently. It seems entirely backwards. Look at verse 12 then of Exodus 3. Again in full, but I said, or he said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you. So here's the sign that I've sent you. Here will be the sign, the confirmation that I, God, sent you, Moses, to go do this. What's the sign? When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Hmm? I can see Moses rebutting and saying, well, that's nice, but how do I know that I'm going to be able to bring them out of Egypt? There's no sign now. You're not giving me something now. That's all future. Sure, we get out of Egypt and go through all those plagues that we're maybe going to talk about soon. And then we get here. Okay, I can see you're in it. But why would you do it this way? I mean, do you get this? He's going to go down to Egypt. He's going to go talk to Pharaoh. He's going to try and bring out all of God's people. And he has no, in this case, sign to confirm it. This sign that he mentions, the proof that God sent him, will only be sure once he's at the mountain with Israel to worship God. Why does God do it like that? Why does He give him this kind of sign? That will only be confirmed in the future. Well, see, signs do not merely propel us in the short term to do something, like, say, Gideon and his fleas. But sometimes God in the Scripture gives a sign to look back at and carry us far into the future. He gives us proofs 
of His faithfulness to carry us on, that He'll be faithful to the very end. That's the kind of sign we have here. And it's a reassurance that Moses would dearly need, no doubt. Because think about what's going to happen. The sign's going to get confirmed. They're going to come out of Egypt. They're going to worship God on the mountain. And that'll be proof, God, you're in this. And they'll need to remember that as they're sitting and just waiting at the mountain to see what God would do. Wondering, God, are you really in this? Oh, yes, I remember you brought us here to the mountain to worship you. There's going to be hot days, 40 years wandering in the desert after this. God, are you really in this? Oh, yes, you said you would bring us out of Egypt to worship you on the mountain, and you did it. There's going to be false prophets heaping curses on us. God, are you in this? Oh, yes, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you to the mountain. I'm faithful then. I'll be faithful again. It's a word. It's a sign that's saying, look back and remember. I was faithful in the past. I'll be faithful in the future. Trust me. And so walk in obedience. And and we have a sign like this too, even in our Christian life where we can look back at something God has done, and it carries us into the future in God's faithfulness. Think about it. It's your baptism. That's just one. See, your baptism, it's a sign of the past, but it's a sign also of God's ongoing work in the future. Remember that? When Paul's speaking to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, he calls them to go back and remember their baptism. Remember what it meant, what it pointed to. What did it point to? That they are now united with Christ. They have died to their sin and they've walked a new life as Jesus is alive. Understand, that sign is not a one and done deal. It's an ongoing proof that God has been at work in you. And if that's the case, what does He tell them? He says this, coming to it, Romans 6 verse 11, So you must also consider, think about, understand, because you're remembering, Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Why? Because you are. Your baptism was the sign of that. That's the faith you professed when you were baptized. That's the faith the church confirmed as they baptized you. You said you were alive to Christ. We said it too. God confirms it with the baptism sign and so live like it. He's still at work. Put that sin to death. So remember His faithfulness. You may be feeble, indeed. You may be weak, but He is strong and He is with you. And as your baptism, as one example, He was with you then, and He's going to finish that work all the way to the end. So fight sin hard. You don't do it alone. Furthermore, we see a sufficient God commissions a flawed man. Now, we use the expression, you have like a diamond and you keep turning it to see something beautiful about it. In a way, too, we're seeing that as we turn this and we see something more beautiful about our God. But it's also, if you could put the analogy, we have like a darkened diamond that we're turning and seeing our own failures as we see Moses. Moses is a flawed man. And his flaw in this text is merely or mainly that he doesn't even know really quite who God is. Well, God's going to come and meet that need by revealing Himself to Moses. So back to Exodus 3 then. As He promises, well, Moses, I know you don't want to do this, but I'm going to go with you. And then Moses runs through this kind of hypothetical situation. Okay, let's just imagine I go down to Egypt. 
what am I even going to say to people? Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Uh, what am I supposed to tell them? First off, we, want to, we need to clarify, God, that word, is not God's name. God is a class of being, if we can put it that way. Your class of being and existence, you're human. You're made in God's image, but you are not God. You're very creaturely. God is in a whole class by Himself. He is the divine. And maybe it's enough to then call God, God, because He's the only one, the only true one. But our God is more personal than that. He's so personal, He has a name that He goes by. And it's indicated in your, in your Bible often by the word, the Lord, or the Hebrew behind it, Yahweh. That is the name of God. And you'll notice the word, the Lord, it's in all caps or has some small caps to indicate that this points to God's name, His personal name in the text, Yahweh. And we've seen His name in the text already appear in this text. We saw it in verse 2 of Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord, or Yahweh. We saw it in verse 4, when the Lord saw that He turned aside. We saw it in verse 7. We're going to see it most prominently in verse 15, when it's the Lord, Yahweh, who has sent Moses. This is the name of God. And it's a name that the patriarchs knew. The patriarchs were the, the, those who worshiped God of old, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth. They knew the name of the Lord. This is not new news, that what gets unveiled in this text. Just as one example, we have in Genesis chapter 13, we read this about Abraham. Abraham journeyed to the place where he'd made an altar at the first, and there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord, or the name Yahweh. Abraham worshiped God by this name. The point is, Moses likely knew this name. This was not new information, despite his question. He knew the name of God, Yahweh, for him and his people. Well then, okay, genius, why does he ask the question? The question isn't so much about who... Or excuse me, the question is far more about who than it is what. It's not about what is your name, but who is the one behind the name. See, in the ancient Near East, especially, that's the ancient context of really the whole Bible, your name meant far more than just it's what people called you. People call you Rick. People call you Tim. People call God Yahweh. It's It's more than that. Far more. Name said something about who you were, your, maybe it's your personality, or in this case, your very existence and being. This is what Moses does not understand. I know your name might be Yahweh, that's what your name is, but who is the one behind the name? What does your name mean? And to that deficiency, God speaks. Verse 14. God said to Moses, you know, who is this God? I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Who is this God? 
What is he like? Most fundamentally, how might you describe him? But you can call him the I am. The I am who I am. In the Hebrew, you see on the screen behind me, the echyeh asher echyeh. I am is speaking to you. I am is sending you. This shows that he is set apart from all creation. He is not like us. He is not like any of the so-called gods of Egypt or of the Canaanites or any god of our own making. And so Moses, maybe he's glad of this. This seems to help. You can start to get a handle on who is this God? He's the I am. That's good to know, but the more you think about it, the more you ponder it, the more mysterious and incomprehensible he becomes. Really, that he is far greater than you could have imagined. I want to draw out for you three things that we are not and that he is because he calls himself the I am. First, as the I am, God's telling us he is self-existent. Self-existent. This is like nothing else that you've experienced. We're always trying to explain the cause-effect relationship in our world and in our life, right? You meet various people. And you're asking, oh, how did that happen to your eye? What went on? How'd you get here? Where'd you come from? We're always trying to explain things. We look at creation and we wonder, how did that get there? Well, let me know the answer. God made it. And then we have children. And your little child, the master theologian they are, ask you this question right before bed. Okay, but who made God? Go to sleep. No, but it really is a fair question. Because everything they experience in their world, they see construction happening and then a building appears. They get a new puppy. We saw the mommy puppy. I got a new little brother in the door next in the room next door. He was in mommy's tummy before that. Everything in our world comes about from some other place, but not the I am. He just is. There never was a time when he was not. He's always been existing, M. He didn't start. He has no ending. He didn't warm up. He has no stop. He just is, and he always will be, world without end, amen. He was first, and really before it all. And that means everything exists and depends upon him. And consider that, that includes you this very moment, your heart beating, the breath you're taking as your chest moves up and down. It's His power even that's holding your molecules together that they do not just instantly fly apart. You sit in the hands wholly dependent on the I am. Can you yet get the feeling that you are not God? Second, also is the I am. He is not only self-existent, he is self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He just is. Where'd you come from, God? I am. What do you need? I am. He doesn't need you. Doesn't need your praise. Doesn't need your money. Doesn't need your food, your prayers, your powers, your voice. You don't add anything to him. He perfectly exists apart from all of it, in and of himself. He doesn't need to sleep. 
He doesn't need food. He doesn't lack anything. He doesn't need the sun to warm him. He doesn't need air conditioning to cool him in our Virginia summers. He's totally self-sufficient. He has no unmet desires. And in this way, again, he's entirely independent. He depends on no one. I trust you can feel it already, but in this way, you are nothing like God. You are so dependent on so many things. And then what if I told you all of those things you depend on? They all go back to the I am. Is it not then what makes our sin and rebellious streak that we try and go out on our own so horrible, such a farce and such folly? I mean, who do we think we are? I mean, our society has tried, it seems like harder than most, to try and just make ourselves independent, that we get to call the shots, we get to be our own captains, we are in control of our lives, such that it's gotten so wild that you can't tell me who to love, you can't tell me who to marry, you can't tell me what to call me, you can't tell me what my gender is, you can't tell me what my goals should be, you can't tell me anything about me because I am self-determinate. I'm in control until you're not. And something happens, and the la-la land you've been living in crashes. And you realize, I am not in control. I am not God. I depend on so much. I'm not sufficient in myself. We depend on all kinds of things. He never does. He's fully sufficient. Despite whatever you might think or do, even in relation to Him. Third then, He is also the great I am as self-existent, self-sufficient, but He's also eternal. He always was and always will be, and He's never going away. His reign over creation and control over everything is constant, and it will go on forever. He will never die and give the throne to someone else. He never moves along. He's eternally present. He's never late. He's always on time, perfectly patient, never absent, never ending, always there. And that means you will have to reckon with Him. God doesn't change to us. We must change to Him. I love the way one brother put it. He said, God was there before we came. He will be there when we are gone. And therefore, he concludes, what matters in all of our little lives above all things is this God, the I Am. Back then to it, to the text, that's all only part of what's caught up in this phrase, I am who I am. Such that the Lord continues and he says, who am I? I'm the I am who I am. And you can tell them that the I am has sent me to you. Again, in the Hebrew, the echyeh asher echyeh, the echyeh, the I am has sent you. Well, that's a mouthful. So God has given us a shorthanded way to refer to Him, and that's His proper name, Yahweh. In keeping with the ancient Jewish tradition, and even with the example of the writers of the New Testament, God's name, as we've already talked about, appears like this. You notice in quotes there, the the Lord, and the Lord is in all caps. But in the Hebrew Bible, you see it written right below there in the Hebrew characters. It's just four letters. That's God's name, yod heh vav heh Or we can best figure pronounced like this, Yahweh. 
God's personal name is Yahweh. But that name encapsulates, really, and is connected to the I am who I am. And maybe you can even hear it in Yahweh. His name sounds like Echyeh. It comes from the same Hebrew word. The I am word is related to this name Yahweh. And maybe if you can't see it that way, look at how they are interchangeable. So just look in your text right now. We're in verse 14. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So who sends? The I am sends. Well, look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, say to this, this to the people of Israel, the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the Lord has sent me to you. They're interchangeable. The word name Yahweh encapsulates all that is, I am who I am. That's the significance of his name. Such that, as his name appears another 6,827 times in the Old Testament, the Lord in all caps, or Yahweh, What's God saying you should think of? You should think of Him as the self-existent one, the self-sufficient one, upon whom everything, including your very life and breath and thoughts, your wanderings and your wonderings and your questions, all rest on Him. He is the Lord. He alone is God. So after giving this long-form definition then, as we've noted, He says, pass this story on to the leaders in Israel. Verse 15. God also says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, again, notice that's all caps, that means Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. As God makes this introduction, what then unfolds in Exodus? God's exploring for us and exposing what it is that He's the I Am. The I Am, the remember, that's coming down to save His people. And what's we going to see when God comes down? Things get serious, right? Look at the plagues through Egypt. Things get serious. People get redeemed and brought to Him. Things get serious. People come to know God. He comes down to show Israel, to show Egypt, to show us as we read, to show all the world what He's like. But of course, this is not the only time Yahweh has done this. Look over to our final text in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, toward the end of the chapter. For here it was, you remember John's gospel opens with the Word, who was with God, who was God. He became, he came down, took on flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And as He is here on earth, God in flesh, He's teaching us what He's like. And what does He teach us? Well, we'll take one example here. We're in John chapter 8, verse 51. Here's what He teaches us. John 8, 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jewish leaders who hear this, they're at best bristled, if not raging at him for saying so. Look at their response, verse 52. And the Jews said to him, 
Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? I love the way they ended. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are, Jesus? You better than Abraham? You can be death? Who do you think you are? And then Jesus has the cheek to say in response, hey, you mentioned Abraham, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And again, they're like, what? Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, wait a minute, you're not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? You know, it'd it'd be like me going around saying, oh yeah, Cicero, he was a good friend of mine. Alexander the Great, a little peculiar, but boy, he was an effective general. I remember the time I met the Apostle Paul. That was 2,000 years. Abraham walked the earth 2,000 years before Jesus did. And Jesus doesn't look 50. That's impossible. How could that be, Jesus? Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. And he doesn't mean merely that he exists before Abraham did, though he did. But how did he exist before Abraham? For he himself is the I am. The self-existent, self-sufficient one coming down from heaven to save. And the Jewish leaders didn't miss it. They got what he meant. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. They thought he was blaspheming, but they're the blasphemers. They're the fools, thinking they can pelt stones at the I am. That's foolish unbelief, but it's where we've all been. Jesus himself is God. He's Yahweh, the all-powerful, self-existent I am. And this is it. This is why his promise is true, that he can promise eternal life. Are you really greater than Abraham who died? Oh, yes. I'm the I am. I am life. And I give it to all who trust in me. Death cannot stop me. I am. Sin cannot hold me back. I am. Your sin cannot separate you from God because if I'm with you, I will see you all the way home. He is the I am and forever so. That's why it's so incredible he can say later to them, this is John 10, 28, I give them eternal life because he's the I am and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is the glory of our Redeemer who is and always will be. We may be feeble, we may be weak, we may be flawed, we may be sinful, We are not up for the task that God has called us, but the I am has come for us, He has saved us, He is with us, and He's called us. May we, in obedience, walk after the risen I am, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.